secretary called me and said, hey, do you want to come to California and be the CISO? And I, and I said, yeah, why not? You know, and so this goes to, to one of these, you mentioned it earlier, you know, to be kind of the guy that gets the call. But the other really important thing, and this has been, I think, one of the keys to my success is when opportunities pop up, you have to be ready to take them. And, and sometimes they're hard. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and I'm very excited to be sitting down with Mark Weatherford, CISO and Head of Regulated Industries at Alert Enterprise. Mark wanted to be a CB, but the Navy had other ideas. Then, after 26 years of service and multiple CISO roles later, he found his way into the White House. Today, Mark joins us to share how he became the guy who gets the call and why a willingness to embrace opportunities led him to a long and successful career in cybersecurity. No amount of certification or degrees can prepare you fully for leadership. Any career is a sum of trial, error, and lessons learned. So how do you measure progress in such an intangible field? How can a CISO build things that last, whether it be systems, teams, or even relationships? And when should you put fear aside and truly embrace the possibility of failure? Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. I've, I've been looking forward to this. For those that listen to the show, get ready. There's a, a, a lot to unpack. Mark's had a hell of a career, and he's going to share a lot of it with us here. Mark, for the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Who are you? Happy to be here. Uh, my name's Mark Weatherford. I am currently the Chief Security Officer and the Head of Regulated Industries at Alert Enterprise. We're a security convergence company. We play on both sides of the physical security, IT security, and OT security world. But you didn't start there. When I met with you, you said and a long, long time ago, coming from a farming and ranching community in Northern California, of all things, you wanted to be a CB. So you wanted to smash around with a bulldozer and build runways and all these kinds of things. That was the goal. That isn't where you ended up. Tell us about that beginning. So you're in high school and you want to be a CB. Yeah. So my grandfather owned a, a construction company. They built roads and dams. And of course, you know, growing up around heavy equipment and then in the farming community, that's kind of all I knew was was working around equipment and things like that. So it was just seemed natural to me that when I went in the Navy, that's what I would do. So I wanted to be a CB. You know, I wanted to be first on the beach and build roads and bridges and dams and, and the Navy had other ideas. You know, I, the Navy and their, and their infinite wisdom picked me to go into the, it was at the time it was called advanced electronics program, AEP. And I felt like completely a fish out of water. I'm like, what am I, what are they going to do to me here? But, Anyway, I guess I had a bit of an aptitude for electronics. So they basically, I spent the first two years of my Navy career going to school. And I went to, you know, started out with learning basic electricity and then went to a couple of cryptographic schools, cryptographic equipment schools, 
and I ended up uh, working on a a mini computer at the time. It was quite large. It filled an entire room, big communication system. And there were about 20 of them in the world. So the places that I could go in the Navy were rather limited at the time. But anyway, that kind of started me on my journey working with computers way back in 1976 and started there. If you had the mindset, I think this happens to us in life sometimes, and I think it's important maybe for the newer listener, the, the one earlier in their career, you have this idea that you're going to be a outside, a hands-on, a work with your hands. That's the life you knew. And then, wait a minute, now I'm in classrooms for two years. At any point in that time, were you like, what the hell am I doing? Or was it like, hey, this is new enough that this looks like the right choice? Was there a disconnect there? Did, did it feel good? Or at some point were you like, this doesn't feel right? Yeah, I think I felt like that a lot throughout my entire career. One thing when you, like you said, when you're outside and you're working with your hands, typically at the end of the day, you know, you can see something tangible that you've done. You've changed something. You've built something. You've moved something. Whereas, you know, when you're coding, you might be able to look and see that you actually wrote some code or you fixed a piece of equipment. But um, it's, it's different. It's a different kind of a tangible outcome. And yeah, I did, I, I did struggle with that. And not only, you know, while I was going to school, but like I said, I think throughout my careers, oftentimes I thought, man, what the hell did I do today? You know, what did I get done today? I can remember one time I was driving by a convenience store at the end of the day, probably 4.30 or so. And there were a bunch of guys sitting out there, you know, they're construction workers sitting on the back of their trucks, you know, drinking a beer. And I thought, you know, these guys are not going to think about work again till tomorrow. And my brain never stops working. I always think about work. I never, I never stop thinking about work. I think the thing that you beat me to it, which I kind of love, that job of when you're working with your hands and you have that, not only can you show something at the end of the day, but the other twist to that, Mark, is and you hit it right as I was thinking it, and I was going to ask it, is your your brain shuts off, too. You, and you were talking about the guys on the pickup truck, you know, s sitting down after their long days of labor. Your mind often in IT or in InfoSec, especially, it never shuts off. And you don't get that benefit of powering down, so to speak. And I think that's and I think there's a toll that that plays. It's a different kind of exertion and it's a completely different world. So I don't know. That's a two things I think that you've uncovered is one is it's a different form of achievement, number one. And number two, it's a different mind state that you're in. Boy, you are so right. And I tell you, being a CISO, you know, when, you know, you're, you're responsible for the security of your organization or company, you can't ever, you can't ever turn off. You know, there's always something to worry about for better or worse, you know, whether we like it or not, that's just the nature of the job. You made a comment, and I don't know if there's an answer to this. I don't have one, but you're talking about in general in InfoSec or just in technology. You ask, well, you know, what the hell did I get done today? Um, there's always things you can point to, and you can always list your sort of daily and weekly and monthly, you know, yearly achievements. But at an individual level, did you ever find a way to sort of measure that in a better way so you weren't asking yourself? I mean, especially with a career you've had, but for the listener, is there a way that you figured that out to say, yeah, how do I measure my day? Did you ever nail that down? Well, I mean, sure. There's there's ways you can measure it. You know, I mean, when your team does a good job and 
and you know, and you you finish a project, and whether the project is an administrative project or you know, or a technical project, you can kind of measure success there. It's just it's just different, you know, than saying, "Wow, I dug that hole today," or "I built that engine and that car today," or you know, whatever it might be. I mean, I, I, we have, we've taken different paths. We started in a similar spot, but my, my personal life, a lot of it was, and actually I attributed some of my success in IT, I tied back to starting off in working on a farm and there was no internet. You know, you, you might've had to have borrowed a book maybe to learn how to rebuild an engine or to troubleshoot a hydraulic system that was blowing hoses or we're rebuilding a, um, a, a cutting chain on a trencher or whatever. That troubleshooting process, I think, sticks with you in a way, but it's still very, very different. I'm glad I started out the way I did because I always think back on the, you know, troubleshooting a system. What is a, a system is a system. And so you get started at a young age. So you were in service. You were 26 years active. And for most people, for many people, I mean, that's, you, know, you might find other work, but that's the career, like kind of the the story there. And and I think the story for you in the conversation and meeting you, and we've not known each other long. I had a, a nice long chat with you the other day, but that's for you. Things really kind of got cooking after that for you. So so you decided to go into quasi the the civilian side. I wouldn't call it you know government ish, but you went to Raytheon. What was that? Well, you you finish your career. You're sitting around. How did you even get to Raytheon? Did somebody call you and say, hey, you want a job or what happened? Yeah, it was pretty much like that. So at the time, the Navy was going through this huge technical transformation, at least in the community that I was in. And we were building something called the Navy Marine Corps Intranet. It was a $6 billion project, which back in the late 90s was was a huge, huge deal. I think, you know, it may have been the biggest IT project in the world at the time. And see, Raytheon had the subcontract to run security for that program. And so I was in the Navy and I was running a, um, running an ops center, a security op- operations center. And I was kind of planning to get out of the Navy. I mean, I didn't have a firm date in mind or anything like that. And Raytheon, literally Raytheon called me and said, Hey, we're building this operations center in Coronado in San Diego. And if you're interested, we'd love to often, you know, interview you and, and see if you'd like the job. And I said, yeah, you know, kind timing's right. And, you know, it's right up my alley from a skill perspective. And Raytheon hired me. I moved to San Diego and we built, you know, this huge operations center. I think at the time it was the largest security operations center in the world. It was, and, and we were responsible. I think when we moved in, it was an old airplane hangar, and we completely renovated this place. I mean, it was bare concrete when we moved in. So, you know, I was responsible for getting all the equipment installed, hiring all the people, training all the people, coordinating with the rest of the IT teams, and and integrating in. And you know, it was a a pretty big deal. But that was kind of one of those, you know, there were, there was no days off there, you know, that was 24, seven, 365. And because it was just such a huge push to get this thing done so quickly. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a big, big job. For those that haven't done it and I haven't done it at the scale that you're talking about, 
I have done it though, where you have an existing building and you're knocking down walls and building walls and running cable and separate networks and hiring staff and, and, uh, but at a baby version, a 6,000 square foot version compared to yours was probably a city block, but it is a, to your point, it is a hell of a lot of work. In my case, I had normal operations to run while you're, I did it with a team of great people. So it's not just me, but there's budgetary items, there's political items, there's all these things you have to manage. It is a hell of a lot of work. You know, and, and you said something there, and, and, and I was thinking the same thing, is it's not something that one person could do. I mean, I had an incredible team of people, you know, some that I hired, some that were hired for me by Raytheon, but oh my gosh, it was, we had a great, great group of guys and gals. We were inventing stuff as we we're going. I mean, you know, the, the construction part was easy. The getting the people in and figuring out know, just, you know, new equipment would roll up and say, okay, here's just the firewalls that we're going to use. You need to send, you know, five people off to go training on these firewalls. And it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable accomplishment that the whole team did. Approximately how many people are we talking about? I know there's a construction element to it and there's contractors and there's that's a project. It has a beginning and end and those people go away once the stuff is built. But like in a general sense, I mean, you're from an equipment and an architecture and a uh, from a command standpoint. I mean, how how many people you said send five just on the firewalls? Is this 50 people? Is it 150 people? Is it like what's the rough scale? So. Yeah, when I left, we had, uh, I think, about 80 people in our security operations facility. There were probably three or 400 people in the entire operations center, you know, that, you know, worked for the different companies. We had, we had a telecom group in there. We had an IT group in there. We had a logistics group in there. And yeah, it was a, it was a pretty big operation. I mean, this goes back a little while, you know, we're talking 20 years ago, roughly. Is there anything that strikes you that you remember from that period of time that, you know what, the one thing I learned is, you know, for someone out there who's getting ready to build a, a, a similar capability today that's got to worry about the physical, the training of staff, the pallets of crap that shows up and you're like, well, this is three weeks early or 10 weeks late, or does anything come to mind and you're like, you know what, I think the big thing I learned is what, anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, and I would say it's in, in every project, every job I've ever had. And that's where you've got to have two or three people that you can count on. You know, you can't do everything. You can't make all the decisions and you can't manage that many people. So you have to have, you know, kind of a core group of, of leadership that you depend on to do that. Like you say, you know, that pallet of equipment that arrives three months early, you know, you can't take time out of your day to figure out, okay, where do we put this? You know, where's it going to go? Who's going to install it? You just have to have, I mean, good leadership is about delegating and you have to delegate both responsibility, but even more importantly, delegate authority to people to be able to do their job without worrying that someone is watching over their shoulder and micromanaging them. You stole my point again. I was going to say that you, you have to get, and this is a, a lesson that goes beyond projects, but is integral into that as well, is from a management philosophy, from a leadership philosophy, more importantly, is great leaders, I think one of the attributes is they're, they're great 
delegators. Now you can't just show up and delegate. There's a process that you you get to when you arrive to that, and one of it's delegating it to the right person, and with increasing responsibility over time. But you're absolutely right. You have to be able to say, "Look, I got. I'm going to give you this swim lane or this area of responsibility, and I'm. You don't need to come check with me unless it's catastrophic. Like I trust you to run this. You know, this is your mission right now is to do X. And I, I think we fumble that ball often in information security. I see it where many leaders are hesitant or have difficulty delegating. But I, I'm glad you mentioned the delegation piece, valuable for product. I think it's because in technology, we often don't train our people to be leaders. You know, I mean, you grow up from somebody who's got your, your hands on your keyboards and you become your expert as a technologist. And then the next thing you know, you're in a management role, but you haven't really, the only thing you have to fall back on is if was what you learned from your managers. And I think far too often in technology, we put people in roles of responsibility far too early, either far too early or before we've actually given them the appropriate training to understand, you know, what those responsibilities are. And the issue is that then you end up with people in leadership positions that are doomed to fail. And, you know, they just don't have enough experience. They don't have enough skinned knees and skinned elbows to know about the decisions that they make and how they're going to play out. It's completely the truth. I don't know how you synthesize or even train for it. I think when people hear, especially on the, what, on the civilian side, when they hear training, people equate it to going to a class. I don't think that's what you're saying at all. I think that there's a method to it of part mentorship, part controlled failure. My father used to say that you get this through failures and mentors. That's how you learn you know, elements of leadership. And he was a special forces officer a long, long, long time ago. He's gone now. But I think that we we miss that somehow. And the growing importance of, of information security, we need to catch up. Like this is only getting more important. And our ability to build new leaders, we need to improve that capability as a community and not dwarf it. Yeah. I have a, I have a good story here. And it, it was actually transformational for me is, so I mentioned that when I first joined the Navy, I was, I was the big dog going working on this big computer system. I got to my first duty station and the comms shop was located in the teletype shop. Now, very few people today know what a teletype is, but it was an early printer and we had thousands of them in our facility. And there was only one computer and that was mine. And of course, you know, managing a computer is not necessarily a full-time job. So I got put in the teletype shop to become a, to work on teletypes, you know, when I wasn't working on my computer. Well, these old teletypes, they were marvels to me. There were, I don't know, thousands of moving parts and everything was aligned and calibrated and adjusted right. It would print. And I was terrified of them. And I remember, here's the lesson. That's the, that's the setup for the lesson. My leading petty officer at the time, the LPO, typically a first-class petty officer in E6, they're responsible for running the shop. 
that's their job is to manage the people. And this, he was, he, his name was Al Janello. He's from Pittsburgh and he was this gruff old guy, always had a cigarette hanging out of the side of his mouth. And one day he pulls me aside and he says, I can't use the language that he used with me, but he said, Hey, stop effing around. He says, I can see that you're afraid of this stuff. He says, don't worry about breaking something. You can't break it. It's anything so bad that somebody else can't fix it. And I just remember that as being, it was kind of like my license to, to go wild. I mean, it's like, okay, if I can't break anything so bad that somebody else can't fix it, I have my license to do whatever I, you know, to do whatever I want to do. And I just remember it being very liberating for me, you know, to have that kind of guidance. And I tell you what, I learned more from that guy. Everybody did. In fact, he died a couple of years ago, and there were probably, I don't know, people from all over the world, you know, were, were sending in condolences and giving Al Janello stories about his leadership and how he helped them. You know, he's a young 20-year-old kid and, you know, how he helped us in our career. And, and I mean, I, I still remember that to this day. Well, first off, that story is a is a great way to, he probably didn't intend it to be this, but a great way for you to today to new listeners memorialize him and more importantly the lesson he shared which is effectively don't work scared and and the management lesson is if your people are scared you're not going to get the best out of them if they're afraid and that's one of my first management philosophies is leadership philosophy is you own all the mistakes right the leader owns all the failures all the bad shit that happens because you need to preserve the staff because you need them working at their best. If they're afraid and they're hesitant and they're not going to, you need them to run through walls. And so you'll take the failures or the mechanical failures in this example. So credit to him and credit to you for retelling that. I think that's a, an awesome example that is great advice to the individual, but also to the leader. If I can ask, why in the hell were you so afraid of these things? And, and, and maybe also, why are you so afraid? And then for those of you that may not know, some of the listeners aren't going to know what you're talking about. You've probably seen one in a movie before, at least, and it's the invasion is starting, right? A friend of mine ran one of these. He was in the Air Force. And when Gulf One was starting, he was in Spain and he were getting clearance to the Airborne. Was I was in Spain during Gulf One, too, by the way. So I won't say his name because the, we'll, we'll do it off the record because there's a story to this that didn't go all the way it should have. There was a delay. And if you're aware of this and you know what the delay was and why it was, and Mark and I haven't talked about this, but anyway, that's what's in my mind and it, the orders start coming in, right? So first off, maybe describe it a little bit or, or a movie they may have seen it in. And then why in the hell were you so afraid of this? It wasn't that I was afraid of it. I was afraid I was going to break it. I mean, there, like I say, there are like just hundreds of small adjustments and stuff that you had to make to these things in order for them to print correctly. If you, if the adjustments were wrong, you know, they wouldn't print or they would lock up or you could actually break them, you know, parts on them. So it, it wasn't that I was afraid of them. It's just that I'm used to working on big things, you know, using big wrenches. And now I'm using these little teeny wrenches and little teeny screwdrivers and, you know, and dental instruments to, for cleaning. And maybe fear is not the right word. Maybe apprehensive is the right word. I was just you know, I was uncomfortable with them because it was so new to me. It was a learning experience. And it was something that I thought about often in my career when I saw, you know, a young sailor struggling or one of my young employees struggling. I've told that story to people, you know, a thousand times and said, 
don't worry about it. You know, you know, as long as you're not doing anything malicious or, or stupid, we can figure this stuff out. That's all part of learning is, is things are going to break every now and then. So you finished this. You were there for about two years. You were in San Diego, the Internet program. You get this sock built. And then what happens? So my boss was in, I think he lived in Florida anyway. I got a call one day from my boss and he basically said, Hey, I've got a interesting project. If you're interested in Colorado, we have a program with the federal government on a, it was actually a missile defense agency program on this project. And, you know, we need somebody to go out there and run security and run lead security lead on that. There are only. In fact, there's nobody on site. Everyone, all the security guys are remote, but we want somebody on site. You know, I, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to leave California. Colorado sounds like a great place to go. And uh, so we packed up and we moved to Colorado. That lasted only for about a year before I got the next call to go to the next job. So that sets you up into, and I think the theme here is, is, or the, the thing that I find most fun about hearing you talk about all this is that be the guy or the person or the gal that gets the call, right? And, and have that opportunity. And I think there's, you could probably write an entire book on how to be the guy that gets the call. But you get another call from the governor of Colorado, if I remember correctly, right? For another opportunity after. So you go, you go do some missile defense stuff that we're not going to talk about much, but, but now you get, now you're almost getting political in a way, right? Or at least in terms of mission, the state government needs you now. And this is now 2005, if my notes are correct. This had to been a little bit of a change. This is, you're getting another kind of call. Tell us about, I think, Mr. Bill Owens. Yeah. So, you know, Bill Owens was the governor and actually he didn't call me. His, his budget director called me and said, hey, you know, we, we're going to hire a Chief security officer, chief information security officer for the state. And, and your name has come to our attention and, you know, we'd like to invite you to come and interview. And a friend of mine who he told me, a guy that I had met, he told me that I would, would probably be getting this call. So you're right. A little bit political, not too much, but way more than anything I'd ever been prepared for. You know, I interviewed for that job and I took the, the CISO job in Denver. And I worked for, for Bill Owens for about two years to the end of his administration. Then Bill Ritter was elected and he came in as the next, as the next governor. And Bill Owens was a Republican. Bill Ritter was a, was a Democrat. And I was one of two of the, um, of the cabinet that was asked to stay on in the new administration, which, you know, at the time it was nothing to me. I mean, I was, I was already planning to leave if I needed to, but it's, I guess it's, it's pretty unusual for over the uh, administration, change of administrations like that, especially when there's a change of party for leadership to stay. So I guess it was, you know, it was kind of a big deal. It was a big deal for me because I really liked what I was doing. I was, we were building a great team and in, in Colorado, you know, we had, we had written piece of legislation. I worked with legislators and we wrote the Colorado uh, bill that codified security in, in Colorado state government. So yeah, I was really enjoying it. I was happy to to go there and, and work for, for both Bill Ritter and, and Bill Owens and Bill Ritter. In fact, I still see Bill Owens every now and then. I saw him 
a couple of months ago at a dinner and we reminisced a little bit. And so it, it was a cool time. I want to ask, I've got a couple questions about this. I think the first is you were a seasoned person in your career. You've done 26 years. You weren't new. You weren't a young pup, but it's still a change. Meaning if you're on a military base or you have a different kind of mission in that, even if you're out of military, but you're, you're building you know, different capabilities and missile defense and all this, there's a different way of communication. There's a different standard of communication. There's things that you can say more freely sometimes if you're strong enough to say it. Now you're going into a cabinet, if you will, of sort of the, the leader of a state. And there are very polished individuals that spend their career on how to maybe, you know, even fib in front of some people and, and still make them happy here in the fib. There's a veneer that gets associated with that. Did you have to make any changes or looking back, do you think, you know, I had to change the way I, uh, my posture, my intonation, my word choice, my wardrobe. Did any of that change? Well, yeah, all of it. Everything you just mentioned changed, but I was pretty naive too without a doubt. I guess the one thing that I discovered pretty quickly is that you can't really trust what people are saying because they may not be telling you the truth right to your face, which was kind of a shock to me. I don't think I don't think there've been probably very many times in my life where somebody had actually lied right to my face. But I found that that in politics that's just kind of the it's kind of the way things are. Whether you like it or not, it, it is. And so, you know, you kind of learn to be a little bit wary of uh, taking everything at face value. I don't think I ever lost that naivete. I still tried to give people the benefit of the doubt. Even still today, I do that. And I just say, okay, you know, if, if I get burned by this, I get burned by this. It doesn't happen very often anymore because I'm a little bit more discerning now. and. And I can ask harder questions now. But yeah, I mean, everything you said, everything is different with going into, into a government role like that. Even though, you know, I, my role was not political at all, but everybody I worked with was political. So it was, it was, it was some interesting dynamics there for sure. And I think that's, I think that sets up a couple different concepts. One of them is, I think this for the for the people that maybe haven't had a similar role, and there's probably not very many who've done it. So I think we should explore it briefly. Is this wasn't just hey protect the state from let's say cyber attack? It's it's a multifaceted position. You hinted at that earlier, where you're not only maybe making technical choices, but you're helping. It sounds like influence policy, and that's that. I think is a not to say that a CISO doesn't influence policy for their own company, of course, but this is something that, that then is being used to leverage within the state political system itself, right, to, to enhance standards or to form law. Or Did you enjoy that or was that, was, that was new, right? So was that some of what you did, a lot of what you did? Is it just part of it? You didn't think about it? I think it was part of it. It was, it was a little bit. So you know, Colorado is a small state by uh, by state standards. We had, at the time, 24 state agencies, and there was not a lot of collaboration between agencies, which I found it quite dysfunctional. So I spent a tremendous amount of my time working with the security managers or security leaders 
in these different agencies to try to bring everybody together. You know, everybody still managed their own organization independently. You know, they had their own budgets, their own people, their own technologies, and one agency was different than the other agency. But remember, this is in the mid 2000s. So this was almost 20 years ago. Security was just starting to become a thing. So, you know, most most of my time was spent with the agencies and with the security leaders. But you mentioned that working with the legislator, legislature, yes, I was, you know, I, I was like ankle deep in policy almost immediately, which was and policy in a different way. I mean, as you said, you know, so I can remember I'm still working. I'm working with Senator Ron May, and he was really an advocate of mine. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't have been successful without him. He he grasped the the future of security and technology, and he's like, we need to get in front of this. So this is where I learned the trade-offs in, in government. We were writing the state policy, state cyber policy, and, you know, he would say, ah, we, we can't do that because we're going to run into opposition here and here and here. So we, let me go talk to these people. So it was kind of a um, watching the trade-off that happened there between where we started with what I thought was a good security policy and what we ended up with, which was still pretty good for, for the time, were pretty different things. And it was because of some of the trade-offs that had to be made to accommodate everybody in order to get this legislation passed. I think that's both frustrating and fascinating. I think it's it's similar also to what you'll find in if you work for a big company, you know, Fortune 50, a lot of times, you know, I was not the CISO, but uh, reported to them and had responsibilities probably beyond my title. But the amount of politics that go into big decisions and the amount of influence it takes to get things moving, it's not just about being a good leader or a good sock manager or a good intrusion analyst. It's in order to get things moving, dollars, cooperation, not pissing everybody off. Like there's a lot. So I find that you describing, so I can tell you really like this guy and you go into it thinking, yeah, man, this is golden. And he's like, ah, wait a minute. This is, we need to hold on. Like I need to go check with these folks. And you're thinking, what the hell would you need to check for? This is, I just wrote the gold standard here. And he's like, ah, there's things you don't see. And that's the thing I love about life. When you have a friend, when you have a mentor, there's something you don't, Steve, you don't see that. Hold on. There's a piece of this you don't see. That is where, talk about mentorship, talk about development. So I want to transition again. So then you, you ultimately, you leave Colorado and now you're going to go be the CISO for the Terminator. Yeah. Terry Takai was the CIO for the state of Michigan and I've met Terry a couple of times. And Schwarzenegger hired her to come to California and be the CIO. And Terry called me and said, hey, do you want to come to California and be the CISO? And I I said, yeah, why not? You know, and so this goes to to one of these, you mentioned it earlier, you know, to be kind of the guy that gets the call. But the other really important thing, and this has been, I think, one of the keys to my success is. When opportunities pop up, you have to be ready to take them. And, and sometimes they're hard. I mean, sometimes you literally got to pick up and move. And this was one of those cases, you know, move back to California, back to Sacramento to go and then build this program in, in California. 
So I didn't spend any time at all with Schwarzenegger. I met him probably half dozen times, maybe in the course of the two years I worked there. I, you know, I didn't have regular meetings with him, but I was, you know, having him as, as my boss, my ultimate boss, it really helped me to get stuff done. You know, when I went to meetings, when I went to events, when I met with vendors, when, you know, when I met with people, when I said, yeah, I'm the sister for the state of California and the Schwarzenegger administration, that carried a lot of weight. That, in fact, that carries weight even today. People are still fascinated by that today. But once again, there was an incredible team already in place. They didn't have the authority of being a state CISO. They were, I think it was called the Office of Information Security and Privacy Protection. And, you know, it was just a little officer, I think six or seven people there. But they were all wicked smart and they were really dedicated. And they just needed somebody to come in that had a little bit of horsepower to be able to help them move their things along. And, and so that's what I was able to do, you know. And, and again, the people that were there were, had, did most of the work. I was just kind of the pretty face on top that helped you get things over the line. Which is, in many cases, what's needed most and sometimes most difficult to fill. As long as they feel connection to you, to be able to get in and help push things through and to be that sort of advocate where you're more of a diplomat, it sounds like, in this position, in a way. You're not, you're not yeah. worried about maybe the attack space quite as much, but you're the diplomat to kind of get awareness and contacts and collaboration and that kind of thing. Uh, wonderful exercise. I, I love the fact, though, that, first off, Arnold, I love his story as a human the enthusiasm he has for life and a lot of the just the early stories about what he did and his investment philosophies and he he was building doing stone masonry when he came over and all this crazy stuff just a, an interesting person so to be even in the halo of that guy is fantastic i don't know he's still one of my heroes you know is he perfect no none of us are perfect but just look at what he's accomplished through sheer will is just is amazing and and, you know, I, I want to go back and I think one of the, one of the things that I was most, I think, successful and most proud of during my time in, in California was, you know, I'd seen success in Colorado by bringing the security teams and the different agencies together and getting collaboration to happen there. And so I really kind of built on that in California and, and there. However, though, I think we had, at the time, there were over 160 agencies, departments, boards, commissions, councils, you know, different organizations, and every one of them operated independently from a, from a security perspective. So I would get, I think, four times a year, I would get everybody together, you know, in a little conference, and, and we would work together and collaborate on on um, on different things that we could be working on together. One plus one equals three kind of a equation. And, you know, the relationships that were developed were just, you know, it was really amazing and it was very, very, very successful. So, you know, the agencies that didn't have a lot of money or didn't have a lot of resources, when they needed something, I could marry them up with one of the agencies that, in fact, did have a lot of resources or or did have a lot of money and get them to work with each other to help each other. And it's funny, I was just out in California two weeks ago. Um, they asked me to come and speak at the California Cybersecurity Education Summit. And there were two other CISOs 
California CISOs subsequent to me on this panel, and we were just talking and sharing stories. And it's amazing to me that some of the things that I started when I were there are still going today and are still considered successful today. So, you know, I think anybody looking back on their career, if you can look back and, you know, in 10 years or, or 15 years and say, I started that program and it's still running and it's still successful, you know, that's probably something to be proud of. It absolutely is. And it and it kind of goes into that earlier question we started with when you're like, what the hell did I get done today? It's that. It's that, right? The, it's, it's an element of legacy. It's the people that you've helped mentor and build out. And it's the programs you've built or the, the things that continue to live in a world of technology where things can last. You know, you could have a virtual machine or that lasts just moments. How do you build things that persist many, many years? No, I think that's awesome. And credit to them for having you back as well. That had to have been a, a, a lot of fun. We'll stop there for now. Tune into our next episode to pick up right where we left off to hear more about Mark's experience at NERC and the Department of Homeland Security. There's no shortage of career wisdom with a guy like this, so don't miss out on part two.